Bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Rent. That was a very loud beep. I don't even know if this is working. Mark, Mark, are you there? Are you screening your calls? It's Mom. We wanted to call and say we love you and we'll miss you tomorrow. Cindy and the kids are here. Send their love. Oh, I hope you like the hot plate. Just don't leave it on, dear, when you leave the house. Oh, and Mark, we're sorry to hear that Maureen dumped you. I say, say, lovey. So let her be a lesbian. There are other fishies in the sea. Love, Mom. But first, how are we doing? I'm so glad to be back in your ears after a week away. Chris and I, as I uh, reported to you during our last episode, we went to a wedding this past weekend, and it went. It was a fun experience. You know, weddings are fun. I'm sure. I'm sure many of you listeners have been to weddings. But you know, the funny thing about weddings is that you meet a lot of strangers, people that you only interact with once before never seeing them again. And I don't know if you're like me, but you know, one day you you may find yourself explaining a personal project, like let's say uh, a podcast, to someone at a wedding. You know, you'll be explaining your personal project to this wedding stranger, and they will look at you like you're the stupidest person to have ever lived, and that person will say, oh, oh, oh I'm sorry, what, what was the name of the, the show? And you'll repeat the name of the show, and they will say, oh, oh, oh yeah, um, okay, yeah, I mean, try, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to that, yeah, why not, yeah, And then that same person will try to imply a chorus line is misogynistic, even though they've only ever seen the movie. And then your brain will turn to a delicious butterscotch pudding, and the children of the village will lap it up. Oh, how they'll lap! Benny is in the booth for the first week of training. The first and only, I think? Benny, right? Benny is nodding. Patty is nodding. First and only week. Okay, we're diving in. Diving into the deep end. Eh, we'll figure it out. I should say Engineer Benny is not to be confused with Benny, a character from this week's subject. Though as an engineer, one could argue Benny works within the realm of the cyber arts. Does, does that sound accurate, Benny? Benny is nodding. Thank you very much, Benny. All right, let's get into the show facts. Show me the show facts. Rent was initially conceived in 1988 by playwright Billy Aronson, who sought to adapt Giacomo Puccini's 1896 opera La Boheme into a modern musical. La Boheme, for its part, is based on Henry Merger's short story collection, Scène de la Vie de Boheme, which was also adapted into a successful stage play. Aronson's idea inspired a songwriting collaboration with Jonathan Larson. Together, they created some of Rent's most memorable numbers, including Santa Fe, I Should Tell You, and Splatter, which eventually became the show's titular song. It's the titular song. Their ideas weren't always in sync. For example, Aronson 
hated the idea of calling the show Rent, only coming around to it when Larson pointed out how the word, which is the past tense of rend, means torn apart. Larson eventually asked Aronson if he could take what they had created and develop Rent further on his own. Aronson agreed, but only if he received a conceived by and additional lyrics by credit if slash when the show made it to Broadway. In general, he was ambivalent when it came to most of Larson's ideas, but has gone on record as saying he's grown to love the show. Aronson went on to write several one-act and full-length plays, as well as music for the children's series Postcards from Buster and Courage the Cowardly Dog, which I find to be very charming. By 1992, Larson had produced hundreds of songs for Rent. One of the earliest complete versions of the show included a whopping 42 numbers and a plot many admitted was far too unstructured and complicated. Despite its shagginess, Rent saw its first staging in 1995 with the New York Theater Workshop. The cast included two performers who had become forever linked to the show's success, Anthony Rapp and Daphne Rubin Vega. The 95 workshop led to the development of an off-Broadway run. On the night of that production's final dress rehearsal, Larson sat down with Anthony Tomasini of the New York Times for what would be his first and last interview. Tomasini was intrigued by Rent when he learned it was set to premiere nearly a century after the opera on which it was based, La Boheme having first premiered on February 1st, 1896. The New York Times interview took place on January 24th, 1996. By the morning of January 25th, Larson had passed away. In the weeks leading up to his death, he had reported chest pains, dizziness, and shortness of breath to his doctors at the Cabrini Medical Center and St. Vincent's Hospital. These symptoms were misdiagnosed as signs of the flu or general stress as a result of working on the show. In truth, Larson had been suffering from Marfan syndrome, a genetic disorder of the connective tissue. Often inherited, it can affect the lungs, eyes, bones, covering of the spinal cord, heart, and the aorta, which is the human body's main and largest artery. Larson may have been able to lead a naturally long life if he had been properly diagnosed, but an aortic dissection, a tearing of the aorta's innermost layer, resulted in a lack of blood flow to his heart, which killed him. It's an unsettling example of life imitating art. Larson's body, like those of the people who inspired the title of his show, had suddenly and swiftly been torn apart. In a state of shock, the cast of the off-Broadway production turned to Larson's parents on how to proceed. They had flown in for the premiere performance of the show. Larson had yet to be buried, and no one was sure if the show should go on. Larson's parents ultimately gave their approval, and a simplified concert reading was quickly arranged. When the evening began, the cast was seated at a series of tables, but the energy of the piece inspired them to eventually abandon this static set up and perform full out. When the show came to an end, a heavy silence fell over the crowd. From the back of the house rang the voice of a single audience member who shouted, Thank you, Jonathan Larson. Rent's off-Broadway run was an enormous, 
sold out success to the point where demand for a Broadway transfer became undeniable. The show would go on to become the winner of the 1996 Tony Award for Best Musical. It officially opened on Broadway on April 29, 1996 at the Nederlander Theater and ran for 5,123 performances. According to Wikipedia, Rent is the 11th longest running show in Broadway history, sitting snugly between Beauty and the Beast at number 10, 5,461 performances, and Jersey Boys at number 12, 4,642 performances. As I mentioned a moment ago, the original concept for Rent was devised by Billy Aronson. The book, music, and lyrics were written by Jonathan Larson with additional lyrics by Billy Aronson. Other Jonathan Larson (laughs) credits include, I'm laughing because I have to say the title of his earliest work, which is almost impossible to say out loud. It's Sacramemoral Anority. Sacramemoral Anority. That's the title that he gave. His, <laughs> that's where that's where he began. He also wrote a show called Superbia, which was an adaptation of George Orwell's 1984, Tick Tick Boom, otherwise known as 3090, otherwise known as Boho Days. And I found this to be a delightful bit of news that I, I was not aware of. He also wrote music for cassette story adaptations of an American tale and the land before time. I love it. I love these guys working for children's entertainment. I find that to be very charming. The director of the original Broadway production of Rent was Michael Greff, the musical director. None cited, oddly enough, unless I'm missing something on the IBDB page for Rent. I think I might be missing something. But no official music director, musical director, I should say, is cited. The choreographer was Marlis Yearby. The scenic design was by Paul Clay. The lighting design was by Blake Burke. The sound design, which (laughs) nearly 30 episodes in, I realize haven't been citing the sound designer. That is something that we could be throwing into the mix, Jonathan. So the sound design for Rent was by Kurt Fisher. Hello, Kurt. The costume design was by Angela Went, and the original Broadway cast included Tay Diggs, Wilson Germain, Heredia, Jesse L. Martin, Dina Menzel, Adam Pascal, Anthony Rapp, Daphne Rubin Vega, and Freddie Walker. Might be Freddie? Let's go with Freddie. Freddie Walker. Freddie? Ugh, I apologize, as usual. Tony nods. Rent won the Tony Award for Best Musical, of course. It won Best Book of a Musical, Jonathan Larson, Best Original Score, Jonathan Larson, and Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Wilson Germain Heredia. And it was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical, Adam Pascal, Best Actress in a Musical, Daphne Rubin Vega, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Adina Menzel, Best Lighting Design, Blake Burba, Best Choreography, Marlis Yearby, and Best Direction of a Musical, Michael Greff. In total, it received 10 nominations and took home four awards that evening, and it also would go on to win the 1996 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Let's talk about the plot. Now, for the purposes of this summary, I'm opting for the character breakdown model, which, as we will recall, was previously utilized when discussing a chorus line. Uh, will you be providing insight as to what characters from La Boheme inspired their rent counterparts? Well, what a succinct and polite question. Yes, the answer to your question is yes. Speaking of La Boheme, let's begin by making a general comparison between the opera and its modern predecessor. Puccini's piece depicts impoverished bohemians living in the Latin 
quarter of Paris in the 1840s. They live, they party, they create art and battle with tuberculosis. Rent updates that setting to the Alphabet City neighborhood of Manhattan's East Village. The Bohemians of this period live, party, create art, and try to survive the combined ravages of AIDS and the HIV virus. Its plot officially begins on December 24th and covers one calendar year, one that falls somewhere in the late 80s or early 90s. The first character we're introduced to is Mark Cohen, who was inspired by La Boheme's Marcello. Like Marcello, Mark was initially written to be a painter until Larson turned him into an aspiring documentary filmmaker. Mark lives in a rundown loft apartment with his roommate Roger. They have no heat and routinely deal with power outages. Unlike some of the other characters we'll meet, Mark and Roger have parents who routinely call and leave concerned voicemails about their well-being. These calls are screened and ignored, though I have no idea why. It would appear they've chosen to reject the conventions of a secure life in lieu of struggling for their art, which is laughable, privileged, and exhausting. Fun fact, fellas, unless your parents are bad people, you can create art and wish them a Merry Christmas. It's called the social contract, Be Nice. Mark's footage of a local protest and riot lands him a job with Buzzline, a riff on schlock journalism programs like Hard Copy. It's a steady, well-paying gig for a wannabe filmmaker, but Mark quits soon after his friend Angel dies as a result of AIDS. He feels the need to finish his film, his film, which is about, uh, oh, uh, the people in his life? New York, ten cities. That's hard to say. We see a rough cut of his footage as the show comes to a close, but it looks like a rough cut of home movies, which is fine. I'm not here to dogpile on Mark's film, though I doubt it would make much of a splash at festivals. Making art is hard. We all have to start somewhere, okay? Yeah, it's fine. I have a theory when it comes to Mark's sexuality, or the potential lack thereof. A month before the show's plot kicks off, he's dumped by Maureen, a performance artist who leaves him for a lawyer named Joanne. Side note, this point used to serve as a joke at the expense of Mark's manhood, but I can't see how audiences would find it funny in 2019. If you think the idea of a guy's ex-girlfriend coming out as gay is hilarious, I don't know what to do with you. Have fun with Ross's first season arc in Friends, I guess? I don't know. Anyway, my theory, which admittedly borders on, or is straight-up fan fiction, begins by supposing Mark and Maureen's relationship was really nothing more than an experiment. Maureen had never been with a quiet, unassuming guy like Mark and wanted to see what dating him would be like. And for his part, Mark wanted to be in a relationship because it would help him feel normal. He renounced his family. He's living in squad. His art is getting him nowhere, and his friends are dying and dealing with crippling addiction. Even the most committed, free-spirited bohemian needs to feel grounded if they're going to get through the day, and Maureen provided that sense of stability for Mark. Again, this is all within my little, you know, crazy kooky theory, my crooky theory, but that's all Mark got out of it. That sense of normalcy, I mean. He didn't like the granular aspects of dating, the work that goes into it, for all of his declarations of anger 
anger and loneliness. Mark was secretly relieved when he found out Maureen was leaving him, and we never once see him pursue love or sex over the course of the show. A voicemail from his mom implies he has a strained relationship with his father, so for me, this all adds up to Mark being afraid of his true self. Maybe he's gay, maybe he's bisexual or asexual, but it's obvious how even amongst his progressive friends, Mark isn't owning up to his feelings and or identity. Roger says as much during a confrontation in Act 2, so it's clear this conflict has been noticed by those around him. I'm throwing out a lot of conjecture here, but it's only because the show, as written, has almost no time for Mark. Like Jonathan Larson, he is chiefly an observer, documenting life while watching it die out. This would obviously contribute to the character's feelings of isolation, but I say he needs to look in the mirror and work out some personal shit. Get in front of that mirror, Mark. Who is that girl you see staring straight back at ye? Self-reflection will only help improve your art. Let's talk about Roger Davis, who was inspired by La Boheme's Rodolfo. Roger used to be a musician on the rise before his girlfriend, April, learned they had both contracted HIV, presumably as a result of intravenous drug use. In a moment of despair, April left Roger a note about their diagnosis before slitting her wrists. We do not spend nearly enough time processing this horrifying and devastating information. I'm convinced Roger found her body in the bathroom of his apartment, an image that would be impossible to shake. When the show begins, Roger has recently returned from a stint in rehab and is trying to write a song he can be proud of before his disease kills him. Roger meets and falls in love with a neighbor, Mimi, but her own struggles with addiction cause him to push her away. He's also supremely jealous of how she used to date his former roommate, Ben, which I find to be a tad juvenile. At one point, Roger moves out of New York City to bum around Santa Fe, only to return to the Big Apple within the span of a single music number. If you couldn't tell, Roger is a mess, but he's probably dealing with undiagnosed PTSD, so I'm willing to cut him some slack. His girlfriend killed herself. It's upsetting. I referenced Benny a second ago, so let's explore what he's all about. Benjamin Coffin III, who was inspired by La Boheme's Benoit, is Mark and Roger's former roommate and current landlord. He was seemingly an artist at one time, though in what medium I cannot say, and has since rejected the bohemian lifestyle. Now he's a man of means, having married Allison Gray of the Westport Grays, and bought the building in which he used to live from her father. Benny plans on clearing out a tent city that exists on the property so he can build a cyber arts studio, quote unquote, a concept that never ceases to amuse me. What kind of art do you produce? I produce cyber art. All right. He goes on to describe this facility as, quote, a state-of-the-art digital virtual interactive studio which is even better. It's a virtual studio, Benny. Get the fuck out of here. Unfortunately for Benny, Maureen plans on protesting the eviction of the tent city, so he approaches Mark and Roger with an offer. If they can't convince Maureen to call off the demonstration, they will be able to live in the newly renovated building for free. In lieu of this first option, they can pay off the last year of rent in one lump sum. 
To clarify, Benny has allowed Roger and Mark to stay in their crummy apartment for free, which is nice, even if there's no heat or consistent power, but now he's pulling the plug. If they refuse to sabotage the protest and can't afford to pay up, they will be thrown out along with everyone else. Got it? Got it. Benny is not an especially interesting character. He has an on-again, off-again thing with Mimi and genuinely seems to care about her to an extent. And when Angel dies, he pays for her burial, so he's not the one-dimensional prick everyone in his social circle makes him out to be. But I wouldn't want to play Benny, and I don't think anyone else would either. I want to play Benny? Well, you're weird, and you're a weird person. Mimi Marquez, inspired by La Boheme's Mimi, a seamstress with tuberculosis, is an erotic dancer at the Cat Scratch Club. Like Roger, she battles with a drug addiction and AIDS while ignoring her mother's calls. Let's pause here for another side note, because I want to point out how Mimi's mom leaves a voicemail in Spanish... And during the song Out Tonight, Mimi makes a fleeting reference to her home as a place where the Spanish babies cry, quote unquote. Methinks Larson had little to no reference for what it means to be Latinx because these details are painfully broad. Despite the wide brush strokes, I like Mimi as a character a lot. Her relationship with Roger is troubling. She's 19 years old, always keep that in mind, but I applaud her no bullshit attitude in the face of his erratic behavior. What she sees in Benny is beyond me, but you know, hey, the, the heart wants what it wants. During the show's finale, Mimi nearly dies after having lived on the streets for weeks, if not months. Our little rascals, that's what I refer to, I refer to the group as our little rascals. Our little rascals make a half-hearted attempt to seek medical attention, but for the most part, they stand around and gawk while Roger sings to her. She's trembling on a fucking table. He's singing to her. Mimi eventually flatlines, but don't worry, she's totally fine, unlike Mimi the seamstress who dies in the opera. Sorry, did I forget to say Mimi encounters a goddamn ghost during a near-death experience? Put a pin in that. For now, we're moving on to Angel Chounard, who is inspired by La Boheme's Chounard. Chaunard, meow. In the opera, Chaunard is hired by a wealthy English maniac to play the violin until a parrot dies from anxiety. In Rent, Angel is a cross-dressing street performer who is approached by a wealthy woman in a limousine. This particular maniac wants her neighbor's noisy dog to be wiped off the face of the earth. So she gives Angel $1,000 to get the job done. Angel plays her bucket drum until the dog, whose name is Evita, leaps from a 23rd story ledge and explodes like a bug splattering against a windshield. Evita, it turns out, belongs to Benny's wife, Allison, but Benny never liked Evita either, so there are no hard feelings. Well, I, I mean, sure, Allison is upset, but who cares about her? She's rich. Boo! Angel meets and quickly falls for Tom Collins, who is next on our list of key characters. Angel and Collins are, like Roger and Mimi, striving to combat the effects of HIV and AIDS. But unlike their luckier peers, we never witness family members reaching out to Angel or Collins. No, in that respect, Angel and Collins are utterly on their own, and when the former eventually succumbs to her illness, Collins is left to pick up the pieces of his shattered world. But don't fret, Angel appears as a ghost to Mimi as she's drifting toward the afterlife, encouraging her to go back to the land of the living so she can hear Roger's ballad. 
This sounds more like a curse than a blessing, but who am I to question the motivational ethics of a ghost? Rent tends to waffle when it comes to the subject of Angel's gender identity, and it bothers me a lot. She's never identified as trans, and while Mark corrects himself after misgendering her during a eulogy, other characters, including Collins, surprisingly, refer to Angel using male pronouns. It's a mess. One of the best decisions the live Fox production of Rent made was to have Angel be expressly identified as trans, which Collins accepts without batting an eye because he loves her. When Maureen eulogizes Angel, she quotes the character as having once said, I'm more of a man than you'll ever be and more of a woman than you'll ever get. I'm fascinated by the inclusion of this line since it was famously utilized in the 1976 film Car Wash and the decidedly less famous films Mannequin and Mannequin 2 on the move. What are the proper origins of this line? I'm quite curious to learn more as I am and have always been a student of life. If we could jump back to the way I worded one of my earlier sentences, I was talking about how Collins accepts Angel is being trans without batting an eye because he loves her. I don't know if that wording came off a little murky or like it had some sort of slight conservative angle to it. That is not what I meant. I just want to throw that out there. What I mean to really simply say is that when Angel shares that information with Collins, it doesn't affect him at all. Like he just, he completely loves her, uh, which is totally fantastic. And uh, God, I sound like I'm trying to like hedge my bets here. Like it's, it's something that would freak other people out. I, I'm really digging myself in a hole here, but I just, I want to make it clear that I love that and I love them. They're my favorite characters. I had that written down for a later revelation, but I'll just spoil that now. I'm freaking out. Yeah, he's virtue signaling. Shut up. Tom Collins is a professor of computer age philosophy who was fired from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, for teaching anarchic principles in the classroom. Having been out of NYC for the last seven months, Collins returns to begin teaching at New York University. He is violently mugged while getting in touch with his old roommates, Roger and Mark, an incident that leads him to stumble into the arms of Angel. Their attraction is instant and they become inseparable, attending meetings of the life support organization while vowing to care for one another until their time runs out. It may go without saying, but they're my favorite characters by a mile. When Angel dies, Collins is unable to pay for her burial and is relieved when Benny, as I mentioned, steps in to foot the bill. Personally, I wouldn't trust the local priest who refers to Collins as a queer. Seems like he might be a bit of a prick. When we next see Collins, he has taken his dedication to anarchy to a whole other level, having reprogrammed an ATM to dispense cash to anyone with the right code. That code being Angel. He's not especially proud of the theft and continues to hope for a life outside of the city, one in which he runs a restaurant that overcharges his wealthy customers. We're meant to assume Collins is doing fairly well in the wake of Angel's death, but I've always had the sense he's putting on a brave face for those around him. Like Angel, he's kind of the peacemaking social glue that holds everyone together. I want what's best for Collins, and that does not involve theft, so please, stop stealing, Collins! Oh, before I forget, 
Get Collins is inspired by La Boheme's Colin, Colin, who is also a philosopher. All right, two more characters to go here. The first being Maureen Johnson, inspired by La Boheme's Musetta, who was a singer in that opera. In summary, Maureen is a performance artist who left Mark for her current beau after cheating on him quite a lot. Of all the artists in her social circle, Maureen is easily the weakest. There's a sweatiness to her art and all too obvious thirst for attention. Her ideas are blunt, juvenile, and corny, shedding not a ray of light on the issues that face her city. Joanne attempts to flesh out her work with facts and sharper rhetoric, but Maureen only views her suggestions as artistic suppression. According to Benny, Maureen is only protesting his cyber arts studio project because it means the destruction of her go-to performance space, which sounds about right. What else is there to say? She's a narcissistic opportunist who desires validation from as many people as possible, which makes her highly recognizable to anyone who has ever worked in theater. We all know, like, three Maureens, at the very least. If she's still around in 2019, she absolutely has an aggressive presence on social media because Maureen is all about maintaining a brand. She probably makes turquoise jewelry. And finally, we have Joanne Jefferson, who is inspired by La Boheme's Alessandro. This is the only instance where the gender of a character from Puccini's opera was altered for the purposes of Larson's musical. Like Alessandro, Alessandro, did I say that differently a second ago? Joanne is a lawyer. She's easily the most privileged member of the group as her parents are wealthy members of the legal community who routinely rub shoulders with the hoi polloi. But unlike her friends, Joanne actually talks to her parents and doesn't equate suffering with professional legitimacy, which I respect. She's proud of her work, her sexuality, and what she brings to the table as Maureen's girlfriend, even if their relationship could charitably be described as rocky. See, Maureen is constantly flirting slash making out with other women, and it drives Joanne nuts. A fair reaction. If they were healthier people, they would admit they have different priorities and move on with their lives. But Joanne and Maureen are not healthy people. They yell a lot. What can I say? There's a whole song dedicated to the yelling. In terms of representation for gay women, it's... Uh, it's not a slam dunk, especially when you compare them to Angel and Collins, who never argue and are basically saints. If the show's book ever sees a makeover, which I would heartily recommend, its author would do well to start with fleshing out Maureen and Joanne. And that's all she wrote. If it seems as if there isn't a lot of plot to go around in Rent, that's because your hunch is right on the money. Act 1 is halting in its ability to gain momentum and actually get us to its centerpiece, that being Maureen's protest. And Act 2, while emotionally heftier, is loose to the point of Rent becoming a concept musical. Diehard fans shouldn't have trouble forgiving these narrative faults, but I wouldn't fault a newcomer for being put off by the show's patchwork quality. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1996 original Broadway cast album. I almost chose to forgo a session with the OBC album because I've been listening to it since college, and I know it from front to back, but revisiting it proved to be rewarding because this is a fantastic goddamn album. The performances are infused with this fabulous fuck you energy, and those voices, I mean, come on. No one can sing like rap, Pascal, Martin, Menzel, and the rest of this uber 
talented gang of little rascals. If this show is a blind spot for you, do yourself the favor of listening to it this week. I'm not saying it's perfect. Far from it. A fair amount of the lyrics are inelegant to the point of being embarrassing, but it's got heart and charm to spare. I also watched Rent filmed live on Broadway, which I am going to refer to moving forward as Rent. Flob. Rent. Flob. Filmed live on Broadway. Flob, you get it. Rent Flob documents the final performance of the original Broadway run, which took place on September 7th, 2008. When Flob saw a limited theatrical release just a few weeks later, it marked the first time a Broadway show had been made available via North American movie theaters. We still get theatrical events like these on occasion, though not nearly enough. Should Netflix be mounting stage plays and filming them as part of a regular theater series? Yes, but that's a subject for another time. The cast of Flob is uniformly stupendous, with Renee Elise Goldsberry proving to be a standout as Mimi. One can only watch Flob legitimately by buying it through iTunes, but if you're feeling sneaky, it's available in full via YouTube. Random observation about Flob? It presents the 10-minute intermission in its entirety, during which an on-screen ticker counts down the seconds. I'd explain why, but alas, I cannot. I did not rewatch the 2005 Chris Columbus film adaptation, as I have already seen it several times, and it is crummy, a statement we can all get behind, I think. It's not a travesty, but great, it ain't. I don't even know if Fox has made their live broadcast of Rent available online, but regular listeners of the podcast will have already heard my thoughts on that production. Did I like Rent Live? Sure. It featured the bearded woman from The Greatest Showman, and the guy who played Mark was adorable, so Sure, I liked it well enough. Let's talk about the songs. I'll begin with the following hot take. The voicemails from the parents, they should probably be cut. If you present them as originally intended, they slow everything down and make our bohemians look like jerks who can't be bothered to return their parents' love. And maybe it's because I've heard them a million times, but the voicemails are not funny. Now, if you're willing to take a cue from the 2005 film and have those messages be spoken rather than sung, you might have something. The parents would read as human beings rather than clueless doodlebugs, and you can emphasize the genuine concern they feel for their kids. But if you cut the parents completely, the Bohemians can be seen as being definitively on their own and without a support system. The stakes are raised, your audience becomes more emotionally invested in their well-being, everyone wins in the Department of Effective Dramatics. Think about it, directors. Also, hey, directors, hi, show doctor here. Ding, ding. One more question, uh, suggestion, I should say, for you. Stop producing Rent for proscenium stages. Give it to me in the round or make it a totally immersive experience because a proscenium arch distances us from the action and won't do the material any favors. Trust me. Let's talk about the titular song, Rent. Hey, how we gonna pay? How we go? 
performance in musical theater make me feel more like a gleeful dork than the first licks of Rent's title song. That fucking shit is... It makes me want to bite my lower lip and go into full-blown air guitar mode. I just did. And that's not an instinct I experience on an average day. I know people like to mock the lyrics... In Rent, specifically this lyric, we're not gonna pay rent because everything is rent. Uh, People like to mock that lyric as being essentially meaningless, but hear me out on this. The everything in the line, because everything is rent, is that which drains and darkens the lives of these characters. Their addictions gnaw at them every second of the day. Disease is eating them from the inside out. They have watched their friends and loved ones die en masse. Some of them are trying to survive winter in New York without homes. Any one of these conditions would make life impossible to bear. Imagine having to take on two or more. When you're in those positions, the idea of paying rent or bills or serving a system that is in no way interested in you as a human being would fucking reek. And if you can't meet the standards and expectations of that system, you're judged accordingly, which only leads to more anger and embarrassment on your part. Maybe this is why so many of Ren's characters are unwilling to speak to their parents. I realize I may be stretching here, but if you're ever going to see Rent as more than a simple piece of rock musical entertainment, you have to flex your muscles and squeeze the meaning out of it. If the music wasn't this good, I'd say such an excuse was a waste of time, but the show does benefit by turning it over and examining it from all sides. Don't use its flaws as a basis for total dismissal. song to leave behind find one song one last refrain glory from the pretty boy front man who wasted opportunity one song he had the world at his feet glory in the eyes of a young girl a young Beyond the cheap colored lights One song before the sun sets Glory on another empty life Time flies, time tells me the opening guitar line from one song, Glory, is my my favorite sliver of musicality from Rent. It's appropriately isolated, moody, and cyclical, like a mournful thought that's stuck in your mental craw. Adam Pascal is serving neck vein white boy rage, and I am here for it because this is Roger at his most relatable. I never understand why he has so much trouble getting on Mimi's wavelength, but here, when he's pissed off and completely overwhelmed by thoughts of April, that makes 
makes sense to me. Speaking of April, and alert me if you've ever seen a production of Rent that employs this idea or something like it, but she should have an onstage presence. Have her appear dressed all in white during this number, One Song Glory, existing at the periphery of Roger's field of vision. It would establish a theatrical convention that would continue with the passing of Angel, this idea that people die but never really leave us. If you don't like this idea of mine, tough, because it's going to come up a few more times during this deconstruction. It flew out again. No, I think that I dropped my stash. I know I've seen you out and about when I used to go out. Your candle's out. A million I had it when I walked in the door. It was pure. Is it on the floor? Floor? They say that I have the best ass below 14th Street. Is it true? What? You're staring again. Oh, no. I mean, you do have a nice... I mean, you look familiar. Like your dead girlfriend. Only when you smile, but I'm sure I've seen you somewhere else. Light My Candle cracks me up because Mimi has almost no attention span when it comes to Roger's lamentations. Her reference to April as Roger's dead girlfriend is so dark it's brilliant. And when Roger tries to lecture her on addiction, she barely acknowledges it. Who is this sweaty agoraphobe to tell her anything anyway? For the record, I will be including my cover of Light My Candle after the outro music for this week's episode. I know I had previously been dangling it as an incentive for those who wrote Apple Podcast reviews, but now it's being unleashed upon the world, whether the world likes it or not. Kick rocks, world! And you should hear her beat. You earned this on the street? It was my lucky day today on Avenue A When that lady in the limousine drove my way She said, darling, be a dear Haven't slept in a year I need your help to make my neighbor's yappy dog disappear This Akita, Evita, just won't shut up I believe if you play non-stop That pump will breathe its very last high-strung breath I'm certain that cur will bark itself to death. Today for you, tomorrow for me. Today for you, tomorrow for me. All right, yes, yes, yes. We all enjoy Today for You. I'm not going to be able to add anything to that conversation. I enjoy that song just as much as anyone else. Angel is dressed as Santa Claus. She's drumming like a madwoman. It's a blast and a half. What I will discuss is a bonkers bit of inconsistency I picked up on while watching Rent flob. Mark leaves his apartment expressly to help Maureen fix her sound equipment right before Roger goes into his one song glory number. But when Collins arrives at that apartment, Mark is there as if he never left. Then, once Today For You has come to a close, Mark makes a second exit, reiterating his desire to help Maureen fix her sound equipment. What in God's name happened here? This is a problem so sloppy, not even the show doctor can fix it. I'm a show doctor, not a miracle worker, damn it. Now, I wrote all that down, and then Chris said something very reasonable, which is the first time Mark exits the apartment, he should just have some line about, oh, I gotta go pick up some cables, or... I gotta go pick up a few things before I head over to Maureen's protest. Wanna come along? That's it. That's all you gotta do. That really is. The show doctor couldn't figure it out, but Chris did. So thank you very much, Chris. Mark? Hi. I told her not to call you. That's Maureen, but can I help since I'm here? I've hired an engineer. 
great. Well, nice to have- Wait. She's three hours late. <laughs> another way. Say something. Anything. Test one, two, three. Anything but that. This is weird. It's weird. Very weird. Fucking weird. I'm so mad that I don't know what to do. Fighting with microphones, freezing down to my bones. And to top it all off, I'm with you. Feel like going insane. Got a fire in your brain. And you're thinking of drinking gas. As a matter of fact, honey, I know this act. It's called the Tango Maureen. As an actor who no longer considers himself to be an actor, my list of dream roles has shrunk to the length of a cocktail napkin. If the gig doesn't involve my playing Seymour in Little Shop or Bobby in Urinetown, I ain't picking up the phone. Remember this for the future, Engineer Benny, but... If you're in the market for a Mark Cohen, I could be persuaded to pick up the phone if the price was right. Actually, all I really want to do is the scene between Mark and Joanne that leads into Tango Maureen. Their banter is so fun. Just let me do that and call it a day. Have a more talented twink shoulder the rest of the material. I'm an unusually tired, rapidly aging man whose voice is failing him, but I still have small, achievable dreams. Help me achieve my small Achievable dreams. Oh no! As he said, sorry, he's back. <laughs> What's the time? Well, it's gotta be close to midnight. My body's talking to me. It says time for danger. It says I wanna commit a crime. Wanna be the cause of a fight. I wanna put on a tight skirt and flirt with a stranger. Coming to you right as episode six of the Snub Club drops for our $10 a month Patreon donors. In that episode, I pitch an idea for the staging of Jekyll and Hyde that is going to sound quite similar to the idea I'm about to throw out for rent. Bear with me, I'm not a one trick pony, I swear. So, yeah, out tonight is this shit kicker barnstorm of a number, one that drives Mimi home as this indomitable wild child of the night. Fine. But what I would really like to see is the moment before she confidently 
definitely takes the stage at the Cat Scratch Club for this song. I want to see that moment before. I want to see Mimi alone in her dressing room. I want to see her do a bump or three. And I want to see how she steals herself for that audience. How does she manage to pack away the frightening tremors of addiction, her fears, her concerns? How difficult is that for her to do? Mimi may only be 19, but she has done and seen more than most people her age, and I want a clearer understanding of how this has affected her. If I can't get it from the show's book, I'll get it through my original, totally silent bits of staging. The show doctor has spoken! absolutely use another day as an excuse to bring back Ghost April. She wouldn't sing during the number, that probably wouldn't track, but I would have Roger sing to her as a way of wrestling with the present and the past. He would essentially treat April the way he treats Mimi, simultaneously wanting to be with her while doing his damnedest to push her away. You could also play with what April is within the context of this world of ours. Is she merely a glassy image that fills Roger with grief, or does she have agency like the ghost of Angel does towards the end of the show? Can she somehow encourage Roger to move on with his life by making a go of it with Mimi? If you don't like my ghost April idea, I get it. What I'd offer in exchange is encouragement to play down Roger's anger during this song. For one thing, it's not interesting for an actor to continually scream with nothing else to play, and for another, Roger shouldn't be so furious that he comes off as borderline abusive. He shoves Mimi a lot in Rent Flob, and I am not a fan of that shit. Why not have him pull a Harry and the Hendersons on Mimi? As in, yes, I clearly care about this woman, but I'm no good for her, and the only way I can spare us both is if I push her away. You know, standard Harry and the Henderson's routine, I am a genius. Will I lose my dignity? Will someone care? 
allows us the opportunity to revisit the members of Life Support who were introduced in an earlier number I'm now realizing I did not cover. My apologies. I bring these characters up because their original names, Paul, Gordon, Steve, Allie, Pam, and Sue, were those of friends Larson lost as a result of AIDS. These names would change over the course of Rent's Broadway run to honor others who were living with or had recently died from AIDS-related complications. The script encourages every cast to continue this tradition, one that is quite beautiful in its simplicity. Here's the big question regarding Will I, though. Uh, why is Benny singing along with everyone else? He's not dying. He's not living on the street. When he sings about losing his dignity, what could he possibly be referencing? Would he lose his dignity if investors pulled out and he was unable to build the virtual digital techno babble art studio of his dreams? The studio that will finally allow him to achieve lawnmower man status and take over the internet? Be quiet and sit down, Benjamin Coffin III. You're making it impossible for me to empathize with you. Who the fuck do you think you are? I don't need no goddamn help from some bleeding heart cameraman. My life's not for you to make a name for yourself on. Easy sugar, easy. He was just trying to. Just trying to use me to kill his guilt. It's not that kind of movie, honey. Let's go. This lot is so motherfucking artists. Hey, artist, you got a dollar? <laughs> I thought not. All right, so let's talk about a little chunk of the track On the Street. When the character known only as the Homeless Woman, that's her character name, the Homeless Woman, when the character known only as the Homeless Woman yells at Mark for filming her, it's a vicious read of his self-imposed bohemian lifestyle, the kind of stark honesty Rent rarely serves to its characters. Mark and his pals may shout about living like each day is your last, like there is no tomorrow, but only someone who doesn't sleep on the street would think they can get away with saying that. The homeless woman knows this. Is her inclusion in the narrative a way for Larson to admit he's unequipped to discuss or dramatize what it means to be without a home? Because beyond the homeless woman's solo, Rent, as traditionally staged, only utilizes its on-the-street characters as literal background dancers or members of a cranky Greek chorus. They don't even have proper names. It's reductive, to say the least. Rent and its reach are ambitious, but it fails when it comes to saying anything worthwhile about the experiences of these people. You teach? I teach computer-age philosophy, but my students would rather watch TV. Huh. America. America. You're as sensitive as thief. Brush the sauce on to the meat. You can make the menu sparkle with a rhyme. A gentle drum, and I can seat guests as they come, chatting not about Heidegger but wine. Let's open up a restaurant in the Santa Fe. Our labels would be financial gain. Let's open up a restaurant in the Santa Fe and save from devastation our brain. We'll pack up all our junk and fly. Whoa, 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 
survey, you know, tumbleweeds, prairie dogs. The moment from Santa Fe that makes me chuckle is when Collins complains about his students and how they'd rather watch TV than listen to his lectures on computer age philosophy. My response is, who wouldn't? I like how Collins is already turning into a grump who gripes about the attitude of kids these days. Don't these pups know anything about anarchy? I told them about my ATM heist and they yawned in my face. I'll show them. I'll program their Tamagotchis or their Game Boy Colors or whatever the hell. I'll program them to self-implode on New Year's Eve. Now that's a lesson you can't get in school. Shelter, just pay me back with one thousand kisses. Be my lover, and I'll cover you. Open your door, I'll be your tenant. Don't got much baggage to lay at your feet, but sweet kisses I've got to spare. I'll be there. When they said you can't buy love Now I know you can rent it And at least you are my love Online Be my love Ah, here we are The moment where I pick up my solid gold megaphone And shout to the heavens Best song I've already mentioned 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 how Angel and Colin's relationship is rosy to the point of seeming impractical. But you know what? I'm not mad about it. Sometimes I want to watch practically perfect gay men bask in the glory of their love, alright? Straight people get fuzzy, fuddy-duddy, doe-eyed, dum-dum protagonists all the time. Let the gays have a turn at the wheel. You think you've cornered the market on that shit? Fuck you! Angels and Collins would like a word with you in the back. Back door and knock knock. Follow the man, follow the man With his pockets full of the jam Follow the man, follow the man Help me out, daddy, if you can Got any D-man I'm cool Got any C-man I'm cool Got any X, any smack, any horse Any jiggy boogie boy, any blow Okay all right. Bleh. Oh, boy. All right. So let's talk about the drug dealer, otherwise known as the man. That's how the book refers to him, the man. Why is he referred to as the man? Being a drug dealer doesn't make you the man. Being a police officer or sitting in a similar position of authority makes you the man. How did Larson miss this? It's a term that has been widely in use since the 1950s. And don't even get me started on the drug slang everyone is throwing around, which borders on parody. Got any X, any smack, any horse, any juggy boogie boy, any blow? Juggy boogie boy? This is how narcs talk. Jonathan Larson, did you know anything about anything when you wrote this show? Had you ever done drugs in your life, juggy freaking boogie boy? My God. To do is jump over the moon. I gotta get out of 
find Over the Moon to be overlong and unfunny. If you're an uber-talented comedian who can make it entertaining, good for you. I will kiss your bare feet. I will lick the hairs. For now, we'll glide right past it. After I deliver this bit of show doctor advice, ding, ding, show doctor here, give Maureen sexy backup dancers who are dressed like cows. This is not a bit. I really want to see this. <laughs> they would provide the leap of faith vocals and echo effects while justifying Joanne's feelings of jealousy. Hello. You'd only stand to benefit from a character development angle. Win, win. All right, let's move on. Days of inspiration, playing hooky, making something out of nothing. The need to express, to communicate, to going against the grain, going insane, going mad. To love intention, no pension, to more than one dimension. To starving for attention, hating convention, hating pretension. Not to mention, of course, hating dear old mom and dad. To riding your body. Midday past the three suits to fruits to no absolutes to absolute to choice to the village voice to any passing fad to being an us for once instead of a them. in a pyramid is Maureen. The mixer doesn't have a case. Don't give me that face. <coughs> hey, mister. She's my sister. So that's five miso soup, four seaweed salad, three soy burger, dinner, two tofu dog platter, and one pasta with meatless balls. Ew. Questions inspired by La Vie Boheme. Number one, why doesn't Benny leave the Life Cafe with his business associate the second he realizes his friends have arrived and begin to heckle him? Number two, is the business associate his father-in-law? I've never been clear on that. Number three, who is paying for the five miso soups, four seaweed salads, three soy burger dinners, two, two, four dog plat... <laughs> Take two. Who is paying for the five miso soups, four seaweed salads, three soy burger dinners, two tofu dog... Uh... Take three. It's that tofu dog platter part that's really getting me. Take three. You're getting all of this. I'm not cutting anything out. Who is paying? Ah! Who's paying? Oh, it's nah. Who's paying for the five miso soups, four seaweed salads, three soy burger dinners, two tofu dog platters, pasta with meatless balls, 13 orders of fries, and the wine and beer? Who's paying for all that shit? Number four. Can Mark date the waiter at the live cafe? He's quite cute in rent flob. It would be an adorable pairing. Mark needs to get cleaned out by a confident top. Number five. Why does the equipment have to be in a pyramid? I think that's a question we've all asked ourselves. If you're very familiar with rent, please talk amongst yourselves and try to come up with some answers to those questions. Meanwhile, as this is The Musical Man, and you're only here for the hottest of my takes, I have decided to sort every reference from La Vivoem into two categories. That which I consider to be bohemian, and that which I do not consider to be bohemian. How do I go about making these classifications, you may wonder, by determining if the subject in question contributes to a healthy artistic lifestyle. I 
I once thought being an artist meant suffering for your art, but now I could not reject this idea more heartily. If something or someone depletes you, if it does not sustain or encourage you to grow, it has no business being referred to as bohemian. I may also classify something as not bohemian simply because I do not like it. With all that said, let's begin. I'll begin by listing everything from the song that I find to be bohemian. Days of inspiration, playing hooky, making something out of nothing, the need to express, the need to communicate, going against the grain, more than one dimension, hating pretension, fruits, choice, the village voice, yoga, rice and beans and cheese, leather, dildos, huevos, rancheros, Maya Angelou, emotion, devotion, causing a commotion, creation, vacation, mucho masturbation, Passion, Fashion, Susan, Sontag, Stephen, Sondheim, Allen, Ginsburg, Bob, Dylan, Merce Cunningham, John Cage, Lenny Bruce, Langston Hughes, The Stage, Uda Hagen, Buddha, Pablo Neruda, Brothers, Bisexuals, Trisexuals, Homo Sapiens, Pee Wee Herman, I'm a little on the fence with Pee Wee Herman, Pee Wee Me Me, Pee Wee Herman, I almost put him in the not-bohemian list, but yeah, you slipped past me, Pee Wee Herman, Gertrude Stein, Michelangelo Antonioni, Bernardo Bertolucci, Akira Kurosawa, Carmina Barana, Vaclav Havel, The Sex Pistols, Eight... <laughs> 8 BC, 8 BC. I never even knew what that reference was until this week, so there you go. No Shame, Sodomy, SM, Dance, Film, Adventure, Tedium, Dark Rooms, Music, Food of Love, Emotion, Mathematics, Rhythm, Feeling, Power, Harmony, Anarchy, Revolution, Justice, Screaming for Solutions, Forcing, Changes, Risk, Danger, Making Noise, Making Please, Faggots, Lezzies, Dykes, Cross Dressers, Too, Me, You, and to People Living with Not Dying from Disease. Now, more importantly, what from this song is not bohemian? Well, I'll tell you. Going insane, going mad, loving tension, no pension, starving for attention, hating convention, hating dear old mom and dad, shut the fuck up already, pick up the phone and wish your goddamn mom a Merry Christmas. Riding your bike midday past the three-piece suits, that is not bohemian. No absolutes, absolute, the vodka brand? That's a brand. Brands are not bohemian. Any passing fad, being an us for once instead of a them. Handcrafted beers made in local breweries. Uh, apparently, I think both brands and local <laughs> local businesses. Just shut up. Handcrafted beers. Shut up. Yogurt. No. Curry Vindaloo. That's like saying soup, soup. Passion when it's new. All right. Anything taboo. Dorothy and Toto blowing off Auntie M, which they didn't do. They didn't blow off Auntie M. Carcinogens, hallucinogens. Men. 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 Men are not bohemian. No. Men as a fucking gender? No. Not bohemian. Not healthy contributors to society or art. Stop it! German wine, turpentine, apathy, entropy, ecstasy, never playing the fame game, marijuana, masochism, pain, perfection, muscle spasms. Hey, you know what? Let's put marijuana. I'll take marijuana off the not bohemian. I'll put that on the bohemian list. Put that over there. So uh, starting where we left off, masochism, pain, perfection, muscle spasms, chiropractors, short careers, eating disorders. Chiropractors, not bohemian. Eating disorders, not bohemian. I always thought Maureen had that little chunk of La Vie Bohème. Apparently it's a character known only as Girl? Who is this person? Nobody gets solos in this if they're not a fucking main character. What are we talking about? Girl? Who's Girl? Why is she talking about her eating disorder? That's not healthy, girl. 
girl. No family, boring locations, perfect faces, egos, money, Hollywood sleaze, isolation, heavy competition, anyone out of the mainstream, anyone alive with a sex drive. That's my not bohemian list. I also, I can't, I really kind of can't stand the way rap delivers this lyric. The opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. Ugh, ugh, I hate it. It sounds like he's mocking the idea. Don't mock the idea. You're celebrating Bohemia. Is the Seasons of Love stage picture, that being a lineup of the show's cast on the apron, iconic because it's a ripoff of the stage picture from a chorus line? I'm not here to ding the song. The song is a charming enough greeting card of a tune. I'm only here to ask questions and see if we can find those ever-elusive answers. My answer to my own question in this instance is yes, the Seasons of Love lineup is iconic because it's cashing in on a chorus line. There, I said it. I'm brave for saying it, and I can never take it back. I couldn't crack the love code, dear, till you made the lock of my heart inspired by the song Happy New Year. One, why are the lyrics so bad? Two, can anyone convince me I couldn't crack the love code, dear, till you made the lock on my heart explode? Isn't a placeholder lyric for something a wee bit more polished? Number three, what is it about eating chips that makes someone a hick? This question is for Mark. What is it about eating chips that makes someone a hick? You don't like chips, Mark? Chips? Everyone likes chips. Are we all hicks, Mark? Number four, I have a question about a prop Mark holds throughout this sequence. For context, Mark and Roger have been locked out of their building. The door has been padlocked. This is information that could be delivered to us quite simply, and it is by Mark. But how do you visualize the door on stage? Excellent question. You position a big piece of sheet metal so it's standing awkwardly between two red folding chairs. All of this can be confirmed by watching Rent Flob. So that's the door. But this door isn't shown to have a padlock. It's merely a bare piece of sheet metal, as I previously stated. So... 
Where's the padlock? Excellent question. Well, here comes Mark holding a prop. The prop is a miniature version of the sheet metal, and glued to this smaller hunk of metal is a block of wood, and the block of wood has been wrapped in chains and a padlock. Ah ha ha, the padlock, there it is. So Mark is holding this prop, and he's verbally relaying to us that their door has been padlocked. Roger is standing in front of this enormous piece of metal. that's supposed to represent that door, and Mark is also holding a prop version of that door, but apparently that wasn't enough in the eyes of the director because two words have been written on Mark's prop. The words are door and padlock, and there are arrows pointing to the block of wood and the padlock. So my question about this prop is, what is the fucking deal with this goddamn prop? How could this moment have been realized so, so poorly on stage? Number five, my final question regarding this song. Would you like to hear my impression of the drug dealer, also known as the man from the final moments of Happy New Year? Of course you would. It's gonna be a happy new year. <laughs> there, there. There, there. It won't work. I look before I leave. I love margins and discipline. I make lists in my sleep, baby. What's my sin? Never quit. I follow through. I hate mess, but I love you. What to do with my impromptu, baby? So be wise, cause this girl satisfies. You got a prize, but don't compromise. It's a bit of a bum rap because like so many of the songs from Rent, it's beyond overdone. Am I wrong in thinking this is Cabaret Act 101 material, the kind of song you're made to sit through at every college theater showcase? Maybe I'm out of touch. Maybe the songs of Rent have finally been rotated out of those cycles. But my bones say otherwise, and these bones have never done me wrong. Cabaret performers and college students think Take Me or Leave Me is worth their time because it's loud. And loud is often mistakenly equated with impressive. Look at me, Ma, I'm singing loud up here. But there are other better songs one can perform if one wants to belt out some notes. Take Me or Leave Me is what? Cheeky? That's the only word I can use to describe it. It's likable, it's diverting, but it keeps Joanne and Maureen trapped in this emotional cycle we have already seen play out several times. We get it. They fight. They have different outlooks on how a relationship should work. If Act 2 is going to be a series of vignettes, we should use them to learn new things about our characters. Yes? Yes, yes? I say yes. P.S. Remember how in the movie adaptation, Joanne and Maureen have this fight at their engagement party, I want to say? They have a single argument within six or seven rooms at this posh event space before winding up at opposite ends of a pool table. Boy, is it dumb. 
look, I'm no prude when it comes to the subject of sex. I'll talk about sucking dick all day if necessary, but contact has always made me uncomfortable. I don't like it. I'm not here for how these characters are talking to each other. It's so gross and clunky that it shatters my ability to suspend disbelief. Who talks like this? Time for you to experience the greasy fuck of your life. Do I make you horny, baby? Yeah. These are supposed to be hip people in the prime of their lives, not 40-somethings putting on an abstinence sketch in a Catholic school cafetorium. You know what most people who are comfortable with each other say right before they consensually fuck? They don't say anything. They say nothing. The pre-fuck moment tends to come with very few words. So yeah, clearly I'm not a fan of contact, but I especially dislike how it leads directly into Angel's death. Everyone's pouting about their crummy sex lives when Collins appears to drop this news like a bomb. Hard cut to Angel's funeral. What? The Fox broadcast tried to make contact more about Angel's final attempt to cling to life, which I thought was a lot more compelling. I'll say it again, the more you can show me in regards to the pain these characters are experiencing, the greater the impact of your production. If you shy away from or cut around that pain, you might as well admit Rent will only ever be a theme park ride. Two more observations about contact. I hate how everyone is writhing around under that stupid white sheet. They look like blackheads swarming around in a condom. Oh my god, is it unappealing. No, thank you. And is it Maureen who says, I think I missed. Don't get pissed. Missed what? Am I out of my mind? Do I need to... Do, oh my god. Do I need to take a sex ed class or something? Is she saying she missed the, the clit? Jonathan Larson and I would seem to know an equal amount about lesbian sex, which is to say next to nothing. But I've never pretended otherwise, and if I need to know more, I'll go to the source. Patty, Benny, keep the lines open for any lesbians who want to talk about their sex lives. I'm here for it. Live in my house I'll be your shelter Just pay me back With one thousand kisses Be my lover And I'll cover you Open your door, I'll be your tenant Don't got much baggage to lay at your feet But sweet kisses I've got to spare I'll be there and I'll cover you Oh, I think they meant it When they said you can't buy love now I know you can rent it A new lease you were my love On life Oh my life I've longed to discover Something as true as this is
This is what I'm fucking goddamn talking about. You want to know why everyone loves this reprise of I'll Cover You? Because Jesse L. Martin spills his guts in the process of delivering it to us. He knows Collins wouldn't have the ability to put a stopper on his despair even if he wanted to in this moment. Angel is dead, taken after having known her for less than a year, and he will never be the same as a result of this loss. When we watch him eulogize Angel, we go through the ringer right along with him, and it's the most powerful moment in the show. Find ways for all of the characters to lay themselves bare like this, I beg of you. It's beyond crucial. The second this track began on the original Broadway album, my face began to crinkle and get hot. It plays me like a drum, and I am here for it. If I had my way, Collins would wail on stage for a solid 20 to 30 seconds, after he finishes this song, grieving without restraint while everyone else holds on to him for dear life. I'm a masochist like that, what can I say? We can only bounce back for a happy, if bittersweet, ending if we go through hell first. So let's do the work. Why are entire years strewn on the cutting room floor of memory? When single frames of one magic night forever flicker in close-up on the 3D. IMAX of my mind. That's poetic. That's pathetic. I know Mark is the human equivalent of an animal cracker, but I've always appreciated his miserable self-deprecation during Halloween. It's as if by laying out this heinous IMAX metaphor, he understands how bad and unformed his artistic voice is for the very first time. It's an important moment, one that will hopefully inspire a meaningful maturation. You can't turn everything in your life into a heavy lump of capital A art, Marky Mark. Sometimes grief has to be a solo process. Not all the time, but sometimes. For example, maybe don't brainstorm in a cemetery five minutes after you've buried your friend. I hear there are great restaurants out west. Some of the best. How could she? How could you let her go? You just don't know. How could we lose Angel? Maybe you'll see why When you stop escaping your pain At least now if you try Angel's death won't be in vain His death is in vain Are you insane? There's so much to care about There's me, there's me, me Mimi's got her baggage too So do you Tell me what I know, what to do A friend But who, Mark, are you? Mark has got his work They say Mark lives for his work And Mark's in love with his work Mark hides in his work From what? From facing your failure Facing your loneliness Facing the fact you live a lie Yes, you live a lie Tell you why You're always preaching not to be numb When that's how you thrive You pretend to create and observe When you really detach from feeling alive Perhaps it's because I'm the one of us to survive Poor baby! 
questions regarding goodbye love, which entertains me on some sick level because it involves these characters tearing into each other. I'm an asshole. I don't know what to say. Number one, when Roger says, you pretend to create and observe when you really detach from being alive. And Mark responds by saying, perhaps it's because I'm the one of us to survive. What does he mean by that exactly? Number two, both Roger and Collins use male pronouns when referencing Angel. I know I've already talked about this, but the inconsistency does bother me that much. I realize we didn't have as many linguistic tools at our disposal in 96, but Larson must have known there were easier, clearer ways to convey the details of Angel's identity. Angel's identity is important. That shouldn't be something I have to suss out. Number three, Mimi and Joanne share a lyric... (laughs) That may be the most insensitive moment in the entire show. That lyric is as follows. I'd be happy to die for a taste of what Angel had. Um, hmm. Hey, Mimi. Joanne, one second. You're like half an hour out of Angel's funeral tops. You're really gonna, you're gonna say this shit with Collins in the room? This ain't about you, Joanne. Mimi, I like to think no 20-something is this full of themselves, but... I've met some pretty repellent 20-something. So, yeah, 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 I can actually buy it. I buy it. Real, real, totes real. Hashtag real. You're living in America at the end of the millennium. You're living in America. Leave your conscience at the tone. And when you're living in America at the end of the millennium. what you own, Mark is working for Buzzline. Not Dateline, not BuzzFeed, but Buzzline. And he's an on-camera personality? Mark doesn't seem like the kind of guy you would put on camera, but here we are. And his copy for the camera is, coming up, vampire welfare queens who are compulsive bowlers. I'm in love with this stupid joke. Obsessed. Has anyone tried to fully realize this Buzzline segment for shits and giggles? A video sketch? Anything? Because I would watch it in a heartbeat. Women who self-identify as vampires actively scam government safety net programs and rarely leave the confines of their favorite stink-ass bowling alleys? Yes, mockumentary. Hello, perfect storm. Give it to me now. What You Own is deceptively one of the most difficult songs in Rent, if what I have seen is any indication. There's a clip of NSYNC's Joey Fatone singing it for, I want to say, Good Morning America. It's on YouTube, and boy, is it bad. You gotta keep those harmonies and riffs tight and controlled, gentlemen. You know the plot has become too Mother Lucy Goosey when Roger leaves NYC at the end of Goodbye Love and is back by the end of What You Own. And during this infantile sojourn slash vision quest, he's sending postcards to his mother, but also continuing to ignore her calls. That's some sociopathic shit, Roger. You pick up that phone and you tell your mother you're HIV positive and addicted to heroin. Allow her to start the grieving process now before she loses you and it hits her like a battering ram. You selfish brat. Your eyes. Your eyes is bad. Your eyes is bad. It's bad. It's bad. Your eyes is bad. If you think your eyes is not bad, you are a cuckoo bird. As Mr. Blofeld would say, cuckoo, that's you. If I was Angel and I was dead and Mimi's spirit appeared before me, and in the distance we heard this song, I would take her by the hand and lead us both through the pearly gates 
Bye, Roger. Have fun peddling your wares at a potbelly's sandwich shop. I jumped over the moon. What? A leap of moon. She's back. I was in a tunnel headed for this warm white light. Oh, my God. And I swear, Angel was there. She looked good. She said, turn around, girlfriend, and listen to that boy's song. She's drenched. Her fever's breaking. The phrase Sisyphean task comes to mind when I imagine someone trying to pull off Mimi's dialogue during this finale. Don't waste your money on me, me, me. Oh boy. I jumped over the moon. Moo! Dame Maggie Smith couldn't make this work. I'd like to make another case for my ghost April idea, if I may, because as any rent head knows, the show traditionally ends with Angel reappearing on stage to reunite with his little rascal pals. It's a comforting moment audiences look forward to, and I don't necessarily want to rob them of that catharsis. Well, maybe I do. Because my staging would bring back Ghost April, dressed all in white, as you'll recall, followed by Ghost Angel, also in white, and then the entire ensemble, also in white. The implication being that literally everyone who isn't a main character has died at this point, and time is only running out for our little rascals. I swear this wouldn't play nearly as grim as you might think. (laughs) I know I put it very grimly with my own words just now, I would totally want to convey the uplifting idea that those who die stay with us, watch over us, but I also think it's important for audiences to understand Angel isn't the only one who died. Angel should not be some representative of everyone who has died or will die as a result of AIDS. Realistically, he is one of many, right? So let's show the many. Let's represent that somehow. You get it. I'm not going to defend my choices to you a moment longer. I'm not on trial here. I run the show. I'm in charge. Please like, rate, and subscribe, and donate to the Patreon. Peace and love. Peace and love. No autographs. of love again? It's the song you love, but with a funky backbeat, harmonica riffs, and Stevie Wonder. This comes off like an over-the-end credits song for the movie we should have seen way before 2005. My only other thought upon revisiting Seasons of Love, don't measure your last year on Earth in report cards. That's way too depressing. He got an A in social studies and a C in biology, and now he's dead. Lower the coffin. I would be remiss if I didn't carve out some time to discuss Rent Remixed? A West End revival? Reboot? Let's go with reboot. It opened at the Duke of York's Theatre in October 2007 and couldn't manage to run for four months. This version of the show dragged the plot kicking and screaming into the present day of 2007, included Future Beauty and the Beast alum Luke Evans as a member of its cast, and featured new musical arrangements by Steve Anderson. What 
can one say about these musical arrangements, which only serve to gleefully upend Larson's work while offering nothing in the way of new character or thematic insights? Have you ever wondered what Out Tonight would sound like if Mimi worked at a swank hotel piano bar? you haven't. Rest in peace, Rent Remixed. And by that I mean Burn in Hell. And that's my deconstruction of the Rent Score! Yay! Now it's time for a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Oh, well, sex alive and I be blessed. It's me, Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, hello, dear. I'm a living teapot. Oh, I've got a bit of a smudge on my juicy booty. Oh, let me take care of that. Oh, thank you, little napkin. Squeak, squeak. You wiped away my little blush spot. Oh, I just wanted to tell you all about a five, six, seven, eight coffee, me dearies. Oh, me dearies and me bagoras. Don't you understand that my, me body, me body is a porcelain teapot. I'm a teapot. I clamber around. I bounce about. But what is inside me? What is my lifeblood? What is my purpose in life? Well, I'll tell you, me dearies. Oh, I tell you, my dears, it's me, Mrs. Potts. It's me, Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast. You know me. What am I filled with? Coffee. Yes. I, I, I could be filled with any number of things. Let's see. I could, I'll name ten. I could be filled with hot milk. I could be filled with uh, hot tea. I could be filled with Kool-Aid. I could be filled with liquefied marshmallows. I could be filled... Is that ten? Let's say that that's ten. <laughs> All right. Oh, you'll have to excuse me. I'm a bit giddy. We have a guest in the mansion. The castle. The castle mansion. Yes, we do. And she is a right cherry. Oh, she is. Beep, beep, pop, pop. Oh, she is. And I'm just excited to serve her this delicious coffee. This coffee. I see a sadness in her face. I do. I see a sadness in her face. And I think that this five, six, seven, eight coffee, rich, creamy, I think it's going to make her feel safe and warm, especially after coming out, coming out of that cold. Oh, the cold weather, me dear. Oh, hello, me dear. Would you like a nice cup of coffee delivered right from me spout? Yes, you like that, don't you, dearly? The coffee just pouring out of what is essentially my nose. My gigantic fucking schnoz. Do you like that, dearly? I've got a bit of a thing for that. I mean, honestly, I don't want to be human again. I like the idea of being filled with delicious five, six, seven, eight coffee. And I like the idea of it being poured out of my gigantic spout. Dearie, you and I are going to have fun, and you're going to have fun with 5678 Coffee. Now, Napkin, get over here. Oh, I should say 5678 Coffee. You can count on it. Now, Napkin, get over here and continue to buff my booty until I can see you in it! Final thoughts regarding Rent. Larson had his heart firmly in the right place when crafting Rent. He was so eager to tackle the big issues of his day, issues that continued to haunt us in 2019. And eagerness is admirable, but it isn't always 
helpful. Rent frequently has no clue as to what is actually going on with its characters or how we as a community can help them. It's merely ticking off boxes to ensure it covers as much as possible, distilling complex systems and problems down to, well, musical theater shorthand. Addiction is tough. Check. Living on the streets makes you cranky. Check. Dying is a bummer. Double check. But Larson was not the kind of guy to kick back and rest easy once Rent premiered off-Broadway. That motherfucker put in the work, writing hundreds of songs as part of a process that would determine what Rent could be and what it could offer to its audience. He may no longer be around to continue that work, but we are, and it needs to be done. Like I said about six hours ago, I wouldn't care this much if I thought Rent was bad through and through. There's real promise in its premise, and I'm a big fan of his score, warts included. But we need to seriously reassess the staging and rewrite the book from scratch. Because if we keep treating this show like it's a mosquito forever preserved in amber, it will only continue to age poorly. Crack open the amber, drain that mosquito of its DNA, and let's make something new. This is total pie-in-the-sky thinking, but wouldn't it be amazing if Tony Kushner got his hands on this show? He would probably take eight to ten years to get the job done, but a Kushner book paired with a tightened version of Larson's score would be dynamite. And to anyone who feels messing with Larson's work is sacrilegious, take it up with the people who built Tick, Tick, Boom out of nothing. Very few works of theater should be treated like museum pieces. Rent is nowhere near the level of a chorus line, get over yourself. Oh my god, this has gone on so long. You're fine with that, right? I pray you're fine with that. I only want to reiterate how the Fox broadcast made a handful of strong choices, which did exactly what I have just described, shape the piece so it's all the more relevant, and I'm emphasizing here, informative. They utilized on-screen text to enrich the show's historical frame of reference, which was a revelation. Rent is meant to educate, right? Teach us, get us talking, move us to action. The cast emphatically tells us to act up, fight AIDS, but you can't effectively fight AIDS if you're not even aware of what ACT UP was as an organization. Do today's audiences even get that reference? Know your history. I say that like I'm an expert on the history. We could all stand to learn more about the history. In summary, I would call myself a rent head, but rent, you need help, honey. Now, as a reminder, in 1996, Rent won the Tony Award for Best Musical, and the other nominees that season were Bring In Denoise, Bring In Defunk, and Chronicle of a Death Foretold. What a weird trio of nominees. Rent, there is no way I'm taking your medallion away on this day. Not happening. Oh, they only gave that show awards because Larson died. Shut up. When it comes to ranking the show, I'm going to put it in our number 12 slot, right between Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet of 1812 at number 11, and Woman of the Year at number 13. A show-related ephemera, I've got a couple of things for you. A commercial, I love commercials that utilize Broadway tunes. Let's get this commercial for Macy's, which utilizes Seasons of Love. Patty and Benny, take it away. Find jewelry for over 150 years, for every celebration. That's the magic of Macy's. What a dumb, crass commercial that completely goes against everything that I assume Jonathan Larson stood for. I don't think Larson would have enjoyed measuring a year on Earth via Macy's products. Measuring stuff! That's that's pretty fucking crass. And now I want to, I'm not going to play you any of the song itself, but the Rent Broadway cast 
did perform Seasons of Love at the 1996 Democratic National Convention, uh, which, as as we'll all clearly remember, was for Clinton and Gore. Uh, it is... <laughs> It's, it's awkward. It's awkward because, you know, they're doing their damnedest, but everyone in that audience is painfully white. They're throwing their hands up in the air like they just don't care, and a lot of them are just staring straight ahead as if they are living statues. Really weird. It's also really weird to see Hillary Clinton presumably just sitting by herself, staring straight ahead like a living statue. Very weird. I want to read some... Oh, no, I can't do that yet. Patty and Betty, let's get this weird introduction for Seasons of Love at the DNC. Let's drop that here. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Patrick Ellis from Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and a member of the College Democrats of America. I am also a Gulf War veteran, and I feel honored to be here to address you tonight. It was a young president named John Kennedy who spoke of the deeper truths that poetry could convey better than politics and power. There is no clearer proof of that than a show on Broadway than for the first time since a chorus line has won both the Tony and the Pulitzer Prize. The cast of Rent has taken their one night off and flown here on their own. They've come from the great white way to the heart of America. Their song asks a question, how do you measure the moments of a year, even a political year? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the cast of Rent. Okay, now that we have that, I want to read some comments from the YouTube upload of this performance. Uh, Okay, so here's the first one. The only way Republicans measure the life of a woman or a man is how much money they have in their bank accounts. Here's another comment. In dollars and cents, of course, in contributions to their super PACs. Here's another one. In dollars, in bullets, ignorance, and war on women. Here's another one. Surprisingly, Alice Cooper is an outspoken Republican. Here's another one. Antony, that's spelled lowercase a-n-t-a-n-y, Antony Rapp is a dick in real life. Here's another one. Liberalism is a disease, not my opinion, a fact, sorry. And here's one more. This was simulcast along with the Republican National Convention's airing of an elaborate production of the Money Song from Cabaret, where all of the creepy old white men could ogle and a scantily clad young woman. I read that correctly. Where all of the creepy old white men could ogle and a scantily clad young woman. There you go. Now it's time to determine which show we discuss next. And to do that, we will need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, Whisper, Whisper, Shout, Shout. Everyone ready? Then away we go. Listeners, I have landed on, uh, oh boy, I've landed on a show that I think might wind up going into the phantom zone. I think we might be in this situation yet again. This is a nominee from the 1985 season. As you might recall, the winner in in 1985 was Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, This nominee that we will be discussing next week is 
quilters. We're going from Rent, which is pretty much widely known by anyone in and outside of the Broadway theater community, to quilters, which ran for, according to my notes, 24 performances, and yet it received a nomination. So yeah, we're going to be talking about that next week. That's fantastic. Look, this has gone. This is one of our longer episodes in general. I had a lot to say, but for the purposes of this week, I'm not going to go into a full breakdown of what it means to be a Patreon donor. You can go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to learn all about that. I do encourage you to, even if you can, give a dollar a month. If you give a dollar a month, you're going to get a verbal shout out every single week, and I'm not going to skip over that. Don't you worry. So let's give a verbal shout out to our, we have a new uh, Patreon donor. That's Hey What Up. That's the username, Hey What Up. Uh, I also want to shout out Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Again, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. You can get bonus material at the $1, $3, $5, and $10 tier. So go over there and do that research, baby. You can find us via Apple Podcasts. You can write a five star review and help us get us closer to the goal of having 30 written five star reviews. I believe at this point we are at 17. Thank you so much for the reviews that have come in this week. Thank you so much. I love reading those again and again. And if we ever get to that 30 review goal, I will record. I have been promising it each and every week now for some time. I will record an episode about Disney's Descendants, all three films in that trilogy. You can stream the show via musicalmanpod.podbean.com or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod.com Pod and email us at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and Zach Little for our beautiful music. And you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. And remember, my cover of Light My Candle is coming up right after this outro music. Don't miss out. It's real dumb. Bye!
it blew out again No, I think that I dropped my stash I know I've seen you out and about When I used to go out Your candle's out I'm million, I had it when I walked in the door It was pure Here's it on the floor The floor They say that I have the best ass In the 14th street Is it true? What? You're staring again No, no, I mean you do Have a nice I mean You look familiar Like your dead girlfriend Only when you smile But I'm sure I've seen you somewhere else Do you go to the cat scratch club? That's where I work I dance Help me look Yes They used to tie you up It's a living I didn't recognize you without the handcuffs We could light the candle Don't you forget that stuff You look like you're 16 I'm 19 But I'm old for my age I'm just born to be bad I once was born to be bad I used to shiver like that I have no heat I used to sweat I got a cold uh I used to be a junkie But now and then I like to uh Feel good Oh look it's a What's that? It's a candy bar wrapper We could light the was my last match Our eyes will adjust Thank God for the moon Maybe it's not the moon at all I hear Spike Lee's shooting down the street Bahumbug Bahumbug Gold hands Yours too Big Like my father's You wanna dance With you I'm Roger.